Welcome. I appreciate everybody coming. Um, I, I want to give a little way. Amy said I didn't need an introduction, so I'm going to trust that you all know who I am. Uh, I will say that uh, I'm not a fast-talking New Yorker like Tony Tombasco, who you have heard over the years, nor am I thoughtful and reflective like Bruce Douglas, as you know, over the years. Uh, I don't have the knowledge of Romans that Catherine Grieve has, which many of you all have taken. Uh, and I... Uh, I only pray for a portion of Jim Myskin's wisdom uh, about the portion I have of his stature. I'll be satisfied with that. But other than that, I'm just Larry. I work here. I'm the pastor, and I'm glad to be with you for the next five weeks. Um, I really am on this topic. Um, what I'm going to be talking about is the, the title of the series is The Bible and... and the first part of this handout, uh, you know, has the topics we're going to cover. It'll be the Bible and government, the Bible and class differences, the Bible and legal traditions, the Bible and the military, and the Bible and the family. And this is an, a big, broad overview. Um, and, and I'll probably have some text or some vignettes within each one to try to make it a little bit human, but it but it's going to be fairly high level and fairly broad. It comes from um, a book that I've had a long time by Brevard Childs, who was a late Old Testament professor at, at Yale Divinity School, uh, in which he has a few short pages on each of these topics that are again an overview of how the old of, of what you could glean from the Old Testament in each of these five topics. So that's where I got the idea. But once I went back to preparing it, I realized that we also want uh, a New Testament perspective. And, and I've been teaching this stuff so long, I've just added, I've added a lot to what, what he says. So I don't literally uh, follow him. But I would say that, that Childs and then um, a woman that some of you all know through the Great Books courses, Amy Jill Levine, also has some really good material that, that I'm using. And, and then I'm just bringing into these lectures, uh, you know, things from my own teach, teaching and thoughts uh, to go from there. So I do think that it's, I mean, one of the things I always like to say about, um, that I more and more like to say about the Bible is it is, it is truly a book that is in many ways like, you know, Shakespeare. I mean, you can read it and gain wisdom from it no matter what your religious faith is or no matter what your stance toward it is and um, I'm, I'm glad to sort of offer this uh, in light of our uh, adult ed theme of common threads of humanity you can accept this material um, as just wise human literature or you can accept it as, as we do in the church as, as something more than that which is, is sacred scripture uh, for our faith and practice, and, and I hope that, that we'll have a little bit of both in here. So let's begin with a prayer, and then I'll get started with this topic today. So may God grant us to speak with judgment and to think about what we have received. For God is the guide even of wisdom, and God is the corrector even of the wise, for both we and our thoughts are in God's hands. Amen. So um, I would invite you to, you know, 
to follow these if you would like. There's about 40 of them out, um, and uh, I pretty much stick to them, and, and please feel free to write on them, and I kind of put them out so you don't have to try to take notes. But I do want to do an initial disclaimer that Childs offers at the beginning of this book and when we're talking about the Bible and government. Um, the Old Testament has no concept of the state in either the ancient Greek or the modern sense that we live under where there is a separation of the civil and religious spheres of life. They really are linked together in the Old Testament. So that in and of itself is a very important disclaimer to keep in mind. You can't just go from the Old Testament or the Bible to a form of government or how government is supposed to function. But you can draw a lot of wisdom from from the literature and the stories and the narrative. Uh, and what I want to do in here is to trace the development of the role of government in the Old Testament and to a lesser extent in the New Testament to, and then to see how both prophets and sages, which is the wisdom movement in the Old Testament, calls out or reflects reflectively on those who hold power and the citizens for whom they are responsible. Uh, so this is going to be a really broad walkthrough initially, uh, which is now on, on the second page of your handout. Um, so what do we see of the development and the role of government in the Old Testament? Um, the Old Testament, as you know, goes from from creation and fall and its aftermath, which is Genesis 1 through 11 or 1 through 10. And then at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, the nations are confused. They don't understand each other's language, and they are actually dispersed across the world. And if at creation God said, uh, you know, fill the earth and subdue it because of the the fall, which is the great divide between the way things were created to be and the way things are, that dispersal actually occurs in a situation in which it is a response to the reach to the tower from heaven. And, and if you think of it, the, the dispersal across the earth is nations that do not understand each other and are, in fact, already divided from each other. So, so the concept of just the fall continues to to mark whatever societies try to do in terms of, of governing. Um, then in Genesis 12, God chooses among these dispersed nations, one nation, Israel, with the promise of nationhood and land um, and the, the promise that I always teach in my Bible classes of blessed to be a blessing, where the people of Israel are called uh, to receive a blessing, but their purpose is to convey and spread that blessing to all the nations of the world. They're not called because they deserve that blessing in a special way, nor is whatever that blessing is going to consist of limited to the people of Israel. It is, it is parts of God's attempt to bring order and goodness uh, to his fallen creation. Um, as we follow through the Old Testament then, um, you know, we're, we're still in Genesis. The, the leadership, when, when we're talking about government, governing, we're really talking about who and how are we to be led. And so in, in the Old Testament, in, in, in Genesis and through, uh, through much of Exodus, it is the patriarchs who lead. So you've got Abraham and Sarah, then Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, 
Moses. Uh, yes. I'm surprised to hear what you just said. I wasn't aware of that. Where is the scripture which talks about Israel's function in trying to spread the blessing? Well, it's the phrase in Genesis 12, 4, uh, through you, Abraham and Sarah, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's the call of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12, 1 to 4. And I think it's the final phrase in there, verse 4. Okay, this concept that that they're there, that that blessing is to be passed on to all the nations of the world. They all are to benefit from it. So, so if the leadership is is the patriarchs initially, uh, what we watch in Genesis and Exodus is their struggle to have descendants, which you got to have descendants if you're going to be a nation. Uh, they end out in slavery at the end of the Joseph story. They are released from slavery. Uh, under the leadership of Moses uh, in in about 1300 in the Exodus, they find themselves in the wilderness and they have not yet come into the land. So there is this centuries struggle of not having realized the land, barely being a nation, and, and being led by sort of charismatic chosen patriarchs uh, or prophets. Then after they do, uh, after they're finally liberated in, at the Exodus, in, in Exodus 12, uh, the next part of the book of Exodus is what we know of, you know, as, as the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, and the development of the 613 commandments that come out of the Ten Commandments or are what produce the Ten Commandments. And, and it's that law or Torah which essentially gives the people of Israel their identity as a nation. That is, it's a religious identity and a civic identity that's all merged in one. And, and it's only then, you know, which is a good five or six hundred years after the call to Abraham and Sarah, that the people of Israel actually enter the land. And they enter the land in the book of Joshua. Uh, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. And, and that's dated at about 1200 uh, BC or before BCE, before the Common Era. And when we when we get to that period, the form of government they have, loosely speaking, I mean, using our term "form of government," is they are basically led by judges who are charismatic tribal leaders to whom the Spirit of God comes upon. They win a battle. They rule for a few years. The people again become less faithful. They begin to lose. God punishes them, and it starts over. And then another judge comes up. It is is very primitive, and it is very tribal. and, and a lot of us, when we read the Bible, get lost in or turned off by the book of Judges because it is it is very violent. It's where you see God being warlike and the people of Israel uh, being warlike. And again, we are hundreds of years into God's relationship with the people. And and, and the most that, that they have at this period is, is Judges. At the, dur- at the end of Judges, during... You know the figure of Samuel in First, First, Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. 
But the figure of Samuel is called the last judge. And it's during this period that the people of Israel cry for a king because they want to be like other nations. We'll look at that a little bit more in a minute. Uh, And Samuel doesn't think it's a good idea. God doesn't think it's a good idea. But God says, go ahead and let them have their monarchy, have their king. And with that, we get Saul, David, Solomon, and then all those kings that follow in the book of First and Second, or book of Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Um, but I would say when we get to that period in Israel's history, is is the first time we would have anything that would even remotely resemble a form of government that that we would use the term to describe um, a form of government. Um, at the same time that that the kings are ruling, not particularly effectively, but but ruling, you have the prophetic movement arise. And the prophetic movement, the prophets are essentially more religious figures to whom God speaks to speak to the people of Israel to call them back to faithfulness. So that is the characters of Elijah and Elisha, and then all of those books in the second half of the Bible, Amos, Hosea, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all of those are individual prophets whose writers we have. So kind of during the the middle to second half of the Old Testament, what we've got is, uh, is the story of kings who rule and the writings and oracles and preachings of the prophets who are contemporary with the kings. And some of them, I mean, for the most part, they're pretty critical of the kings, um, but they also are calling the people to faithfulness. So, so you've got sort of those kinds of leadership in the Old Testament pretty much side by side for a good chunk of it. Um, it is during this period that things are... Are, are I think going so badly that they that the people of Israel finally developed this concept that maybe nothing is going to save us, maybe it's not going to be the king, it's not going to be the prophets, and and you begin to get this hope for a Messiah, which we all know from Handel's Messiah. That's and that's prophetic writing, that's prophetic literature, but that's where the people of Israel begin to hope uh, that that God will send a Messiah. Uh, to, to, to make things right. And in the Christian faith, that's what we believe happened, you know, with the birth of Christ. Uh, the, the difference is that much of the hope for a Messiah developing within Judaism and even among some of Jesus' disciples uh, it is for a political liberation from the powers that were oppressing the Romans. And so when you have this this uh, stuff going on in the New Testament where, like in Mark 8, you know, Jesus says uh, to the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter says, uh, you know, you're my Lord and my God. Uh, and then Jesus says, yes, and because I am the Messiah, I will be crucified, suffer, and die. And Peter says, no way, there's no way that the king could be that way, that that could happen to the king, to the Messiah. So you have this very 
liberator political understanding and hope for a Messiah. And Jesus actually is the opposite of that in many ways. And that's why, that's one of the reasons he was put to death. And it's one of the reasons that that he was not accepted as the Messiah among among the early Jews. Now, I'm going very fast here, but that sort of gets us to the end of the end of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, um, it's it's there is much less material about governing and government because almost the entire New Testament is written um, for a community of believers who lived as a minority and and often faced the threat of persecution from the Roman Empire. So, and and the New Testament writers only cover about the first 120 years after the birth of Christ, whereas the Old Testament, you've got 2,000 years of of history for this to develop. But But it's very hard for a besieged minority persecuted community or a community that fears persecution, to develop a systematic sense of governing. What does emerge from the New, New Testament is, um, is in, in some of the letters in Romans and 1 Peter, you have a stance that, that Paul and others would urge, which is essentially for the early Christians to be good citizens and not attract the attention of Rome simply so they will stay alive. It's sort of the, you know, get along to go along or go along to get along mentality. It it is simply, you know, be good citizens, don't draw attention to yourself, and maybe within this oppressive empire we will then be able to worship and sort of develop our community of faith along the lines that we want to. Uh, there is also there are also passages in Romans 13 where uh, there are two that are, that are interesting to me. One is is where you um, where there is a there is there are strands of Paul's thought that also urge Christians to recognize the civil power of Rome. And so you get this fairly famous passage in Romans 13.1. Everyone should submit to the government because there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that do exist have been instituted by God. That is another um, strategy on the part of Paul to try to accept the fate of the Christians as a besieged minority. Part of that is because the, the context for that that you have to always understand about Paul is that Paul expected the imminent return of Christ. And one of the reasons that Paul consistently says, if you're married, stay married. If you're not married, don't get married. If you're a slave, stay a slave. Whatever condition you were in, it's not worth trying to change because Christ is about to return. And so... So while Paul is often used to sort of justify a stance in Christianity that would say you should never resist authority, uh, if you actually believe that your days and the days of the world and of the kingdom are numbered, 
that makes a lot more sense than it does if, if you don't believe that. Uh, there's a third thing we'll look at in, in Revelation, if I think we'll have time. Uh, in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12, which is the, at the top of page 3, there is a really interesting uh, verse that Bonhoeffer used from time to time. And, and that is the idea that, that there is some power somewhere called the restrainer. Paul refers to the restrainer. And it appears to be, I mean, nobody really knows what he's talking about that, but it, the verse is, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who now restrains the lawlessness is removed. Um, the potential identification of the restrainer might be the Roman Empire, it might be Paul and his preaching, it might be God and a divine decree, or it might be intentionally ambiguous by Paul. But the idea is that there's some power or force out there that's going to restrain lawlessness, which can, which can get us into uh, certainly one of the functions of government. The, the key is that in the New Testament, even though you've got a, a more limited uh, panoply of theories about what government could be, there's still an ambivalence about it, even if it is a good for for essentially keeping order, because the book the Bible ends with Revelation, and the final depiction of of government in Revelation is as a beast that persecutes God's faithful ones, that is coming from Satan and bearing his authority. So, you know, even even that is not a positive role role of government, uh, as you would imagine. So. I want to move next. Um, I want to make sure that that we're sort of on time here, and I, th- I think we are. If you'll look, if you'll look on page three, it's sort of a, a little bit down the top. It says ex- excursus biblical ambivalence to government. Any of you all who have the Bible that we use for the Old and New Testament, the New Interpreters Study Bible, this is an article. Uh, in, in Genesis on that, on, on page 407. So I'm just summarizing it. But I think it's, I think it's a really good view, at, at least that fits what I glean about, you know, about a biblical overview of government. And the key word to it is ambivalence, which means, <laughs> as you know, that, that the Bible is aware of prose and aware aware of cons relative to governing. So it's hard to get one overall theory. But this article says um, there are initially negative views of government. Um, in the Tower of Babel, which is Genesis 11, human organizations will eventually try to compete with God. And that's what happens in the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 12, um, <coughs> And, in, and all the way through Exodus, the first actual government that is encountered, I think, I think that's supposed to be Exodus. Anyway, the first actual government that we see in the Bible is Pharaoh. And Pharaoh oppresses and enslaves the people of Israel. Um, the, in Deuteronomy, there's a wonderful uh, reminder in Deuteronomy 26 
that the basis of the initial faith of the people of Israel is that God acted on their behalf against an oppressive Egyptian government and consequently made them a nation. That God acts to save people from institutionalized government-sanctioned evil. So, so those three things early in the Old Testament are the Old Testament's awareness of how governments can seek to compete with God, how they can be oppressive, and how uh, people need to be freed from them. There are also more positive images of, of the role of government in the, in, early in the Old Testament. In Exodus 19.6, God says to Israel, you shall be for me a priestly and a holy nation. In Deuteronomy 17, God permits the establishment of a monarchy so long as the king is just, prudent, and law-abiding. Um, the judges that we've talked about earlier were charismatic leaders. They were, they were called by the Spirit of God. They defeated their enemies. They led their people. Uh, they do not inherit their role. There are no taxes, no military, or no draft. During that period in Israel's history, it was all dependent upon the charisma of the judge and the willingness of people to follow. But in this book, not all the tribes followed. They would, they would issue an order to go to battle, and some of the troops would stay home and smoke pot or do whatever they wanted to do. They wouldn't have to join in. Um, in the times of Gideon, I guess it was legal in those days, in the time of Gideon, uh, in Judges, there was a move to set up a, heredit- a hereditary government. Gideon refused, uh, saying, no, the Lord has to rule over you. Yet subsequent judges proved that leaving it up to judges doesn't always work. And as as difficult as this book is, um, there is a refrain in the book of Judges that that is important to keep in mind. And the refrain that's repeated repeated twice is, uh, I'm on the top of page four now, in those days there was no king in Israel and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. That is... That is the narrator of the book of Judges saying that as violent and tribal and ultimately unfaithful as this period was in, in our Israel's life, it is one of the lowest points in our history and God is not holding it up as worthy of exemplification. It's really a prescription for anarchy. And when you're just as an aside, when you're reading the Bible and you, you know, you come to Judges or you inherit from childhood the sense that the Bible is violent, it is. That God instructs people to do violent things, God does. But this is a hedge against that by saying, in those days when our leaders did these kinds of things, there was no king in Israel and everybody was doing what he or she darn well pleased. It's a, it's a condemnatory judgment on that period of their history. And that is, you know, a little bit of relief and just a little bit of counter to, oh, well, this is the way, we, you know, God is. Um, when we get to the monarchy, and I'm going to, at 
at the end of this page, I'll finish and go into some of the stories. So I think we're doing okay. Um, when we get to the monarchy in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, it has both positive and negative elements. Uh, the positive are that under David there are military victories which enlarge the nation. Uh, the monarchy offers a channel for God's blessing as is shown to the promises of David. David captures Jerusalem and builds the temple and evokes the praises, praises of the psalmist. It's really David who does what we would now call nation building. I mean, it's he who, who leads this disparate group of tribes to become an actual nation, which is a thousand years after the promise to Abraham and Sarah. I mean, that's how long it takes. Uh, David's successor, Solomon, had a lot of glory, a lot of wisdom, and a lot of diplomatic prowess, uh, but we'll see weaknesses down below. And then when you get all of the kings after that, um, the good news is that two of them were exemplary, Josiah and Hezekiah. The bad news is the other 25 or 30 weren't, but those two were exemplary, but even they... Uh, they were reformers, they did good things, but the next generation didn't. And it pretty much all went for naught. But that's the positive roles, the positive views you can glean about monarchy. The negative views, or the critical views, are uh, that the use of autocratic power led to civil war, the splitting of the nation of Israel into two kingdoms, which is why you have all these kings. Uh, the foreign policies of several of the kings, Hosea, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah, by making alliances that were uh, destructive, it, it helped destroy the kingdoms. Foreign policy matters. Uh, Solomon, as wise and good as he was, had a massively state-supported luxury and luxurious lifestyle. He built a palace for the king that was bigger than the temple that David had built for uh, the worship of God. And uh, that's one reason why those chapters in the Bible that have all these measurements that our eyes just gloss over actually have some theological meaning to them because it's basically saying that was so many acres and this was so many acres. We just can't follow the numbers. Uh, Solomon also was syncretistic, which meant that he, as all the kings did, had many, many wives, uh, for, and he married some for territory and some to, uh, because of other religions. And, you know, it eventually led him um, away from the focus on God. Uh, the evils of Manasseh and other later kings that are, they, they may only get a one, one paragraph in the book, but they're, you know, they're horrible kings, and the summary of their rule says that. And all of this bad stuff that kings did um, evokes the, com the condemnation of prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Micah. Uh, I mean, a lot of the passages that we hear preached or that we're sort of aware of in the Bible uh, of just the condemnation of wealth. There's... there's We'll look at some of this next week uh, where the prophetic poetry is just remarkable in attacking wealth and corruption and greed and false worship and all that. It's just great rhetoric. 
You just don't want it aimed at you. Okay? <laughs> but, you know, that that's how the prophets exercise critical leadership against the uh, against the kings. So I want to go slowly on the bottom of page four because this is sort of a summary of this excursus. And then I want to just point to a few passages that, that I think are, are neat. Uh, this excursus in the NISB says, it holds that the Bible makes a realistic assessment of human government. That that governments are needed and actually have the ability to provide protection for people and to provide for social and economic stability. Protection and stability are very important for human flourishing. Governments demand uh, support and loyalty on the part of their people, and certainly one of the... Uh, Open questions is is where you know where does where does dissent fit into that? I mean, what does it mean to be supportive and loyalty and and loyal to the government versus the right to criticize? Uh, the gifts of government are precious enough when they work to seem God given and and to genuinely be received by the people of God as gifts of God. And the failures of government are sufficiently serious to seem otherwise. The ultimate danger of governments, at least from from the Old Testament and probably the whole Bible, is that government will see itself as supreme, as demanding worship, and making claims only appropriate for God to make. And, and those are questions that still are with us today. You know, what can the government claim or force or prohibit versus what is ultimately a matter of individual conscience? Hester, a high school teacher of government and civics. Yeah, I have a question. Okay. It's a good question. Um, Theocracy is sort of our phrase probably, I don't know if it originated in the Middle Ages, but certainly in Puritanism, it's a, it's sort of a way that we could understand it. But um, at its best, Judaism is an entire way of life. The Torah is an entire way of life where the law governs your religious ritual activities, but it also governs what you eat and how you treat your body and how you treat your neighbor and what you do when the calf trips over the fence and goes to the bathroom in the neighbor's yard. You know, all those kind of things are covered by the law. So it's it's a very tight uh, binding of, of the way we live and what we believe that's probably on one level, deeper than theocracy. It's not a top-down theocracy. It's built into who they are. Let's look at that in one of our texts, okay? Okay. Um, 
Other questions so far? I'll do about five minutes of questions, then I want to turn to some actual texts. Are your eyes glazed? I mean, is it too much? Yes, Larry. Lawrence. Still dealing with the opening talk. Um, his question is there's not a lot of evidence of the spreading of blessing by the Jewish people or by the descendants of Abraham and Sarah um, I would say yes to that I don't think that's endemic to Jews so much as it's endemic to people who are elect and called by God and it's just very easy when God has called you, especially if you're Presbyterian, to think you have done something to merit that and to sort of regale in your being called rather than remember the second half of it is that you are being called to pass this blessing on to others in all nations of the world. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in the sermon today. But it is endemic to the doctrine of election. Oh, I deserve this. Rather than... God gave it to me. The, the best place, the best corrective to look at is this passage I talked about earlier in Deuteronomy 26, where, where it basically says, you know, God brought us out of slavery. I mean, I can't quote it, but, but I would go back to that passage and just read it through the eyes of your question because it is God reminding the people of Israel that they did not create their own liberation and that their response to that is to be gracious and thankful rather than self-congratulatory. Okay? So let's let's go on from there. It's a good question, but, but let's go on. Are there other any other questions so far about what I've said or reaction that you want to say? Yes, Jack. It, it helps me sort of get a grasp of what this is about to remind myself of people who received this originally are not like our generation. Yeah. It was very primitive, yes. And and that's true of almost everything in the Bible. I, I still think it gleans some wisdom for us. I still think there are some human dynamics. And and you being a good Baptist minister would believe that too, I think. But it is primitive. It is primitive. And yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, there were there were certainly developed civilizations then. So, one more. Somebody had a hand back here, or not? Okay. Let me let me try to just give you a little bit of flavor of some texts that these are randomly chosen by me, but but I think they 
I don't know. I just like them. So uh, the the first thing, and I love this passage. It's first. I'm on page five now. First Samuel eight one to eighteen. This is at the end of the period of Judges when the people come to Samuel because they want a king. They're tired of being travel, being uh, tribal, etc. So, so this is just the passage. Samuel reports all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking him for a king. And the Lord says, these will be the ways of the... No, this is Samuel saying... Yeah, this is Samuel speaking to the people. He basically says, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He is going to take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen. He is going to run to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty, and some to plow his ground, his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers. This is not a vaulted view of kings. He's basically saying he is going to build an army, wage war, and tax you out the wazoo. Okay? That's, that's the introduction to kingship. And so I've always said if you're a liberal, you can find something in there to cheer about. And if you're a conservative, you can find something in there to cheer about. It's a warning against militarism, and it's a warning against taxes. So take your pick. But hopefully hopefully you can listen to one another a little bit and gain wisdom on both sides. But it's not a vaulted view of the monarchy. Can we get the taxes down to 10%? <laughs> there are ways around that, I understand. Uh, then another great passage uh, at random is Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel is prophetic literature. And this is a passage about the shepherds of Israel. The shepherds of Israel are the rulers, the kings. We're way down, down the line in history by this point. And, you know, it's, we get the good shepherd out of this and everything. But this is what Ezekiel says about the shepherds. And I can't read it all, but I'm going to read the italicized parts. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel. Mortal, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, thus says the Lord, I, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, shouldn't the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you don't feed the sheep. You've not strengthened the weak, you've not healed the sick, you've not bound up the injured, you've not brought back the strayed, you've not sought the lost, but with force and harshness you have ruled them. And then down in the next paragraph, uh, I am against the shepherds. And the next paragraph, for thus says the Lord my God, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. And down at the bottom, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will make them lie down. I will feed them with justice. It is a rousing critique of the failure of kings to take care of their people 
in the basic necessities of life and to not be corrupt, not to enrich themselves. And, and it's something we get the Good Shepherd eventually from. And, and it's as if God is throwing up his hands and saying, you rulers have so blown it that I myself am going to come to feed my people. So take that where you want to. <laughs> uh, now, in Proverbs, this is a great little passage that nobody knows about. Um, an example, Larry, partially an example to your question is... As much as the Old Testament is about Judaism, we have these things that sparkle up where non-Jewish people, people outside the covenant, the Gentiles, do or say these wonderful things that the Jewish people are supposed to be doing. And this is an example of it. At the end of Proverbs, we have... The words of King Lemuel, that is not a Jewish name, it's not a Semitic name, an oracle that his mother taught him. So this is a foreign woman, not Jewish, outside the covenant, teaching her son, who is about to become king of something, how he is to rule. And it's pretty good advice, and I didn't print it all by mistake, but I'm going I'm to give you the flavor of the beginning. Um, no, my son, no son of my womb, no son of my vows. One of the scholars says, uh, and then she says, Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. I know that's anti-female, but it's, it's really not because the responsibility for sexual control lies with the king not with the woman he may be interested in. So the first thing this mother is saying is, don't waste your energy and your leadership playing around where you shouldn't be playing around. And it's in the context of King David. Okay? This is wisdom. And then she says to her son, who's about to become king, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink or else they will drink and forget what has been decreed and they will pervert the rights of the afflicted. You know? How many of you have ever heard of that passage before? It's not on, it's not in our Constitution. It's not engraved in any monument in town, but it is a great passage. And then it goes on, and I'm, I'm going to explain this just because. Then she says, and it seems contradictory, give strong drink to one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. That sounds the exact opposite. Give the poor who are suffering alcohol so they won't know how much they're suffering. I mean, is this mother 
totally speaking out of both sides of her mouth. A scholar that I respect says, this is likely actually a cynical comment as if she's quoting somebody else like, let them eat cake. Uh, because this, the verbs here, let them, let them drink and forget their poverty, are indefinite plural imperative. And everything else is the king, is, is the mother talking to the king. Because what follows is as if to say, no, disregard that cynicism. Speak out for those who cannot speak. Speak out for the rights of all the destitute. Speak out, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. This is a non-Jewish mother telling her son how to act as king in the wisdom literature of the Bible. It's just a great passage. Um, one of the things that I have been, that I want to close on is I'm deeply aware from, from having been here all these years how many of you work in government, in military, on the Hill, in politics, and occasionally, occasionally face the issue of having to compromise, of having to do something that you might not be fully supportive of morally. Okay, just every once in a while. Once a year or so, you face that at the office. Um, and, you know, nobody's ever asked me this, but the question is, are we allowed to do that as a person of faith? Um, in 2 Kings 5, 18 to 19, which I'm sure you all read for your devotional last night, um, there is this wonderful passage where Naaman, who is a Syrian who has been healed by Elisha the prophet, He's been healed and he is now converting to belief in God. Says to Elisha, but may the Lord pardon me, your servant, on one matter, on one count. When my master goes into the house of Rimon, which is one of the Baals, to worship there, and he's leaning on my arm, because he's old and I am his valet. And his leaning on my arm causes me to bow down in the house of Rimon, to bow down to the foreign gods. When I go and bow down in the house of Rimon, may the Lord pardon me on this one count, on this one compromise? And Elisha says, go in peace. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Have you ever heard that before? I mean, I, I hadn't either until about 10 years ago when a colleague preached a sermon on it. Now, do you use that to justify every compromise you make every minute of every day? Working in the working in the government. <laughs> That's the cynical comment <laughs> from the earlier passage. Um, and then 
the last one I want to talk about, so I'll give a disclaimer. I, I'm pretty sure Dudley is Dudley. No, Dudley's gone. I'm going to do the men's retreat on the character of Joab. Because Joab is David's chief of staff, general, fixer, henchman. He is always at King David's side. Um, And because of that, he is fascinating. And one of the functions that he he has is is this story, which I'll read you. Uh, This is, if you know the story of David after Bathsheba uh, and, and, and later, there's this curse that's going to come on David's house that that his house will have violence within it, which it does. And Absalom is David's son who raises an army and creates a civil war against David. And it's very bloody. It's very violent. In that civil war, David sends his troops out and tells them to spare Absalom's life. But they don't. And Absalom is killed in battle. And so when David is told this, we get this wonderful scene of grieving that you have probably heard, Absalom, Absalom, oh my son, Absalom, would to God that I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. It is a lovely passage. It's particularly lovely if you take it out of context (laughs) because you see this wonderful grieving on the part of the king. The next scene is this, where Joab, the chief of staff, the general, is told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned to mourning for all the troops. They had won this great battle and won the civil war, and all David, the commander-in-chief, can think about is the death of his own son. Uh, The king, the troops steal into the city that day as soldiers steal in who were ashamed when they flee in battle. They had won the victory, but they were ashamed to celebrate because their king is mourning. The king covered his face. The king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, my son Absalom. Then, da-da-da-da, Joab comes into the house of the king, into the house, the inner chamber, the private quarters of the White House. And he says, To David, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your officers who have saved your life today and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. For love of those who hate you, i.e. Absalom, and for hatred of those who love you, i.e. your troops. You have made it clear today to the commanders and that the commanders and officers mean absolutely nothing to you. For I perceive that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, you would be pleased. So get up 
and go out at once and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not a person will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than any disaster that has come upon you from your youth until now. And by the way, there had been many disasters that had come upon David by this point. Every leader needs a chief of staff that will speak to him or her that way. Okay? So what happens? Then the king got up and took his seat in the gate and the troops were told, see, the king is sitting in the gate and all the troops march before the king. All is well. Long live the king. There's a Shakespeare quote. I mean, it is a powerful scene where a character who in almost... Everything he does in the Old Testament, and Joab is by David, I mean, he's in 25 scenes. Almost everything he does is brutal, murderous, raw, and truly the fixer. But there are two or three places where Joab rises to the occasion. And this is just a reminder that when you are a king or a queen or a person of responsibility, sometimes the show has to go on no matter how much you are grieving yourself. Sometimes your responsibility for your rule is greater than even the loss of your own son who has not been a reputable character. It's a wonderful, wonderful scene. I think. Um, so we've got one minute. I can't finish. You can read the end, the sort of the summary. Any comment? Thank you for coming. Next week we're going to talk about class differences in the Bible. So come back. Thank you. <laughs>